You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be taking questions from the Facebook group and answering them here on the podcast today. If you're not already a member of the Tax Smart Real Estate Investors Facebook group, you can become a member by going to www.facebook.com slash group slash Tax Smart Investors, or just search for Tax Smart Investors on Facebook, and you'll be able to go ahead and join that group. We're actually hosting our next live Q&A where I will be answering questions live from our Tax Smart Insiders community on Wednesday. March 30th, which is coming up at 7 p.m. So if you want to become a TaxSmart Insider, you want to join the live Q&A and get your questions answered, uh, you can do that by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com and becoming an insider today. But with that being said, we're going to dive right into the questions after a quick word from Landlord Studio. If you're a do-it-yourself landlord managing rental properties, Landlord Studio is made for you. The software helps landlords simplify income and expense tracking. With their easy-to-use app, you can digitize receipts, record income and expenses in real time, generate reports, and even manage leases and tenants. Plus, Landlord Studio makes late rental payments and bank visits a problem of the past with secure online rent collection. Get the rent paid directly to your bank account, and you can even automate rent reminder emails and late payment fees. Landlord Studio is also the best way to stay tax compliant. They offer a range of financial reports, including Schedule E and supplier expense reports designed for tax time. You can learn more about Landlord Studio and start your 14-day free trial at landlordstudio.com CPA and use the coupon code REALESTATECPA at checkout to get 25% off your plan. Again, that's landlordstudio.com CPA and use the code REALESTATECPA to get 25% off your plan today. Day. All right. So let's talk a little about why we rebranded from the Real Estate CPA podcast to the TaxSmart Real Estate Investor podcast or TaxSmart REI podcast, whatever you want to call it. I guess we'll figure that out as we go. Because this is our first real podcast episode that we've hosted since the rebrand, right? I think this actually might be the second, the second or the third, actually. Well, the last episode was a tax and legal summit recording, right? right? right. Yeah, true, yeah, true, true. It's the first one that we're here. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know, the real estate CPA is such a strong brand, I feel like, but we've been building out the TaxSmart real estate investors brand and group. We've got that free Facebook group. We have our insiders paid group. Uh, we've got the courses and everything. And I think that we kind of got together and just decided, you know, this, this podcast is really meant for that type of an audience. It's meant for the listeners who have a handful of rentals and they're trying to learn the fundamentals of tax. They're trying to get a little more sophisticated so that they can go and have better conversations with their own CPAs. Or, I mean, heck, a lot of our clients listen to this too. So you guys can have better conversations with us. But the idea, I guess, behind this was the the purpose isn't necessarily the real estate CPA. The purpose is to become a tax smart investor. So we kind of wanted to rebrand and align more with that audience. Yeah, it just makes a lot more sense. At the end of the day, the real estate CPA, it's very much about CPA, right? And uh, tax smart investors is actually about becoming a tax smart investor. And that's why many of the listeners of this podcast are listening is to become 
tax smart and to learn and have better conversations, like you said. So I just think it makes a lot more sense. It's much more in line with that brand and what we're building uh, with the tax smart investors brand. So it's just an appropriate change. It's an evolution. And you know what? It's the same great podcast at the end of the day, the same exact host, the same exact type of content we've been putting out. Nothing's changing except for the name and the artwork a little bit, um, except on iTunes. iTunes is giving us uh, a lot of trouble actually just updating the image. So if it's still coming up as the real estate CPA on Apple, just know that it's something with Apple we're still trying to figure out. Literally, it updates everywhere, (laughs) but on Apple podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that yesterday morning I looked up the podcast and saw that it's still the real estate CPA. Although it was like years old artwork that was still there. So not even our modern real estate CPA artwork. Um, but yeah, anyway, I mean, I know that everybody has been listening to this. We have a lot of listeners. We have 90,000 a month, which is awesome. I mean, that's incredible. Somebody told me recently that puts us in like the top 3.5% of podcasts or something. You, you, you said we're ranked what, like 200 something. Yeah, we're 205 on US 205. podcast, which is fantastic. I never knew that. I never knew how popular the show really was. And so I started looking into the charts and yeah. you, know, you told me it was in the upper like 3.5 or 2.5% or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. We're getting sponsors. I mean, things are happening here, but it's all because you listener are listening to our content and, and digesting it and absorbing it and listening to more and more and more. So something that would really help us really, really help us. And we would really appreciate it. If you've gotten any value out of this, out of any of our podcast episodes, please go leave us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes, Apple podcast, whatever it is these days. Um, Go leave us a five-star rating. It'll help boost the podcast and get it in front of more listeners. And our goal with this is to help all real estate investors across the country become tax smart real estate investors like you. So share this podcast and, uh, and we will be forever, forever grateful for your help. Right, right. And if you're on Spotify too, Spotify actually has their own rating system. So if you are listening in from Spotify, if you can just give us a five-star review on Spotify, if you love the podcast, that really goes a long way as well. But we don't only just have the podcast. It's not the only part of the TaxSmart REI ecosystem, if you will. We also have the free Facebook group, which we've talked about here on the show before. A lot of great things happen in there. I think there's over 9,000 members at this point. Great conversations take place every single day. People are asking questions, not only about real estate tax, but also questions about how they're building their real estate investment business. So it's really cool to see all that type of conversations taking place in there and see how everybody interacts together to really help each other grow their real estate ventures. Hey, even just recently, we had somebody come in and say, my CPA said that my short-term rental, I I can't take the losses as non-passive because I have to qualify as a real estate professional since I earn above $150,000. And so we were able to go in and, and help him. And really, I mean, the community started it by saying, no, that's not right. Because all this stuff, go listen to the, to the TaxSmart REI podcast. But I was able to jump in there too and kind of explain like, look, real estate professional status, the 150K cap, it doesn't apply to short-term rentals because short-term rentals are not rental activities. And, uh, and he was able, I, I think, I think he's still going back and forth with the CPA on it, but I'm telling you, like, that's the whole purpose of this podcast of the Facebook group, that free Facebook group is just to help everybody become a little more sophisticated so that you can at least have these conversations with their CPAs. Because think about it, if I don't want to sound all high and mighty, I guess, but if it wasn't for our group, he would have probably just accepted a CPA's word and moved on. But now he's, he's looking for alternative options. 
and he might find one. I'm sure he will because he's correct in the way that he should be treating it. And his CPA is incorrect. Uh, but I think the tax swing was like $15,000. That, that was the refund that was on the line. So definitely worthwhile to get just a little bit of knowledge on tax. You don't have to be an expert, but that's what we're trying to help you do is just gain that fundamental knowledge so that you can have better conversations with your CPA. So you mentioned the insider group at the beginning here before our break for Landlord Studio. And I want to kind of just talk about that too, because you said there's a live Q&A coming up. Our insiders group is a $50 a month group that we have. Our clients get it as part of their advisory packages if our clients have advisory packages. And what we do in that group is we have discussions. We moved all of our blogs in there, uh, our TaxSmart blogs in there. So we, we closed down the website uh, and moved it all into this private uh, gated group. And uh, it's got blogs, resources, discussions, live events, but one thing that we're adding, which I think will be really cool, is master classes or I guess mastermind groups. We, we're kind of still trying to figure out what to call them. But it's basically a monthly meeting where we're going to talk about different pieces of investing in real estate. So for the first few months, we're going to hit short-term rentals, but it's not going to be taxes, right? It's going to be how to acquire short-term rentals, how to do the due diligence, how to operate short-term rentals, find your cleaners, your linens and all that stuff. And we're going to be having people come in and talk that have short-term rental experience. Like, like we're trying to bring more to this group, this insider group, than just taxes and accounting. You'll get really good knowledge on taxes and accounting, but we're also going to help you build wealth at the same time. So if you want to check that out, it's taxsmartinvestors.com. Go there and you'll see the information and how to sign up. No, absolutely. And one last thing before we dive into today's episode with the questions is uh, I just want to kind of mention, you know, in the free Facebook group, we have about 9,000 members and it's growing. We'll probably soon have 10,000 and 11 and so on and so forth. And it's really difficult for Brandon and myself and our other team members to really answer all the questions that end up getting put in there. So a lot of times you're getting answers from the community and those answers are sometimes really great. Other times they're not so great because they're not yeah. tax professionals, but in the insiders group, which is great, is that there's a lot less people and the people who are in there are a lot more dialed in or generally more dialed in because they have gone through our courses or they've gone through a boot camp. They're already tax smart. They've already kind of crossed the threshold from becoming tax smart to being tax smart. So you get a lot more high quality answers, but not only that, Brandon, myself, and our other team members are able to dive in there and really answer the questions ourselves. So you're getting answers from the, the tax experts, from the people who do this every day, day in and day out, and who really know this stuff. So just something to kind of add in there with another benefit of being an insider. Uh, but you know, having said that, we're going to dive into some Q&As from the Facebook group. So what I've done today is I compiled a bunch of questions that were recently asked. We're just going to go through them one by one and provide answers. So kind of kicking it off, first question is from Lonnie. And Lonnie asks, is providing soaps, lotions, cleaning supplies, and linen changeouts between guests or upon request considered substantial services for a short-term rental? Mm. What do you think? I do not think merely leaving soap, lotion, and cleaning supplies in the short-term rental unit will rise to the level of providing substantial services or cleaning in between stays. I think that's just normal part for the course of business. I think really where you rise to the level of substantial services is when you're providing services that are hotel-like, and that is, you know, provide some more specific examples, it'll be cleaning while the guest is staying there, providing like transportation services, providing a vehicle that they could use while they're at 
at the location at your place. There's been people who've mentioned that to me before they're considering doing that. If you wanted to do that and not make it substantial services, you'd probably be better off renting the vehicle on a, a service like Toro and just um, seeing if there's a way you can kind of package it all together where it's not actually being provided as part of the rent you're receiving from the short-term rental. But the bottom line is if you're providing things you would see in a hotel-like environment, uh, those are substantial services like the daily cleanings while they're there and like breakfast. Like if you came in and made them breakfast or transportation, like I said before, that's when you're kind of rising into that level of substantial services. Right. And there's a CCA, which is a chief counsel advice memorandum that came out in December. It's 2021-51005. And they actually address this. So anybody that thinks that the seven-day rule in section 469, if you meet that seven-day rule, anybody that thinks that that automatically makes you subject to self-employment tax, you need to go read the CCA. If you just Google CCA 2021-51005, then the memorandum will pop up. It's a PDF and you can read it. And in this CCA, they specifically say, look, section 469 has no bearing on section 1402, which is that self-employment tax section, completely different analysis. So don't fall for the trap of like your CPA saying, well, less than seven days, not a rental activity has to go on schedule C must be subject to self-employment tax. That's not true. But to answer this question, one thing that they did address was what are substantial services? Now, the way that this works is there was a fact pattern that was presented to them and they looked at that fact pattern. So it's not really going to answer Lonnie's question, but it could potentially help give you an idea. So in this fact pattern, they said that the taxpayer provides linens, kitchen utensils, and all other items to make the vacation property fully habitable for each occupant. In addition, the taxpayer provides daily made services, including delivery of individual toiletries and other sundries, access to dedicated Wi-Fi service for the rental property, access to beach and other recreational equipment for use during stay, and prepaid vouchers for ride-sharing services between the rental property and the nearest district. So when they did the analysis, they decided that all of that was substantial services and did subject the rent, the net rental income to self-employment taxes. But in this fact pattern, those daily made services were daily. I mean, the tenants were there. And so we still think that, hey, if the tenants aren't there and you're just turning a unit over, that's different. That's not providing substantial services to my guests. That's simply getting the the residency ready to go for the next guest. 100%, 100%. But, but I did find that it was interesting that they said access to beach and other recreational equipment. So you know, I guess you got to potentially weigh the fact that if you have access to amenities that are beyond simply occupying the property, potentially that trips that substantial piece. Yeah. And they also mentioned in there that they had vouchers to and from the local district. I mean, at that point, you're definitely... I mean, For sure. you know, you're definitely yeah. hitting substantial services. I, I know they also mentioned they had it like the utensils and everything in there. I don't know that that's a, providing substantial services. It's like how substantial can that really be? You know, but anyway, we're going to move on to the next question. Uh, if we have no W-2 income and not much other self-employment income anymore, would we want to try to get the short-term rental to qualify for Schedule E by providing substantial services? What are the drawbacks or benefits of having our property on Schedule E for the purposes of paying taxes uh, for Social Security later? So kind of break this down. 
the benefits of doing this, the benefits of paying the self-employment taxes, you are paying into the social security system, uh, which could help you qualify for social security benefits in the first place. You do need to have, um, to be currently insured, you need to have 20 quarters paying into the social security system to be fully insured. You need to have 40 quarters. So if you haven't hit those thresholds yet, uh, paying into the social security system can help you hit those thresholds. And also the more you pay into the social security system, the more you get out when it's time to take your social security benefits. So that's kind of the benefits there. Now, the downsides are you'll usually have to pay 15.3% of the social security tax on the net income from your short-term rental business. And that's up to, I think it's $148,700 of income this year. Doesn't sound like you're going to hit that based on the short-term rental income alone. But uh, yeah, the downside is you're paying 15.3% tax on your net income, an additional 15.3% tax in addition to federal and state taxes. I don't know that it's a benefit to pay into the social security system though. I mean, I feel like it's legalized robbery because I'm going to pay into the social security system. I'm going to pay what potentially millions or, or, or the opportunity cost is millions. I remember looking at somebody's analysis and it was like, if I earn, it wasn't even an, an incredible amount of money. It was like, if I earn $150,000 a year and I max my social security out, if I, if I didn't have to pay social security, and I could have just invested that money into spy ETFs, not even anything crazy. It was like over 30 years, you end up with some like $3 million or something like that. And you could draw down on that at a 4% rate, Yeah, which was, uh, what was that? All right, 4% of 3 million. 120K? Yeah, 120K a year. 120K. So he was like, you could draw down on that, earn 120K a year. And then he compared it to the social security and the social security draws on the same amount or like 4,000 a month. Basically it's just, it's just legalized robbery. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mean, I would agree. I mean, look, you're paying as if you're an employee of a W2 job, you're paying 7.65%, right? And if you're self-employed, it's 15.3%. Now my humble opinion, I, I agree with you here. I'd rather take that 7.65 or 15.3% and just throw it in the S and P 500 index and invest myself and self-insure, right? Self-insure myself for the future. But way back in when they put the FDR, put this in there, the economy at the time was very much hurting and they felt like this type of social assistance was necessary. But, uh, it's, I guess it's important to note too that the Social Security is not only the payments you get in retirement, but it also helps with Medicare and disability. There's other uh, factors that go into Social Security, but no doubt in my mind would I rather just take my 7.65 or 15.3% back and reinvest it myself. And I do think yeah. it's I do think it's a shame that they have this system in there, but you can't even stop it because it's a big Ponzi scheme at this point. Yeah, I'm going too far. But um, <laughs> if you yeah, stop you can't, it, even, you can't even reform because it's like you, all these other people are depending on it already. Right. 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 And they've so. already paid in, they've already did their share. So if you stopped it right now by having us say, stop paying in our generation. Anyway, the bottom line is that's the benefits. That's the drawbacks of uh, putting your, so your short-term rental on schedule C by providing substantial services and paying the self-employment tax. So don't provide substantial services, own passive income, and will force a reform of the social security system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Actually, you would be better off it, based on our discussion. If you believe what we just discussed, then you'd be better off by not putting on Schedule C, taking your fifteen point three percent self employment tax back, and just reinvesting it yourself. It's the path to independence. <laughs> right, right. So we got another one here. All right. If I build an ADU on my primary residence and use it as a short-term rental to meet the material participation tests, can I bonus depreciate the space? Are ADUs any different than an investment property not part of my primary residence? Ooh, that's a good one. 
that's a really good one because especially in California right now, they just, they relaxed all their ADU laws to actually allow people to start building, uh, to, I believe curb the homeless issue, right. Or the, the housing issue, the housing um, shortage. Yeah. Which is actually kind of interesting. Cause I've, t- I've talked to a few California developers and they're all like, it's going to be insane here in a couple of years because they're all putting these four unit properties up now in neighborhoods that were designed for one family to live on, on these lots. Right. Now you're going to add four new families. So it's like the infrastructure is not actually there to support the population that's going to like be moving in here. But anyway, I guess that's beside the point. What, so what's the, what's the, what, what, so you also got to think about property tax there too. If you have four people, if you have a, yeah. a fourplex, they're probably not paying as much property tax. Now I don't know the exact numbers as they would on a single family house. So that's also not going to be able to support the infrastructure. But anyway, the, yeah. the actual, the question was uh, if I build an ADU on my primary residence and use it as a short-term rental and meet the material participation test, can I bonus depreciate it? Do you know the answer to that? I believe you can. So yeah. when you rent out a portion of your residence, you're able to depreciate that portion of the residence that you're renting out. And in this case, you the ADU would be fully used for business purposes, and that would be the portion of your house you're renting out. So you would be able to depreciate that portion of your home. And I'm pretty sure last I checked, it's right in... It's either in the schedule E or it's in the, it's one in one of the IRS publications on rental, um, how to treat rental, um, income and expenses that if you rent a room in your house on a short-term basis, that it's treated as if it was rented on a short-term basis. So the short answer is that you can bonus depreciate the ADU, assuming you don't use it personally. What if the ADU is a separate structure? The answer won't change, but but I've got a different question. What if the ADU is a separate structure and you're renting the main house and the ADU out? Do you report that as two separate entries on Schedule E or is it one property? I don't know. I don't honestly know. It's it's one of those things where we've looked for guidance and our advisory team has researched and researched and researched. And there it doesn't appear to be a clear answer to this question. I think what a lot of people got to remember when it comes to short-term rentals is the rules around section 469 and all these rules that were written, the tax laws were written way back in the eighties and nineties when Airbnb wasn't a thing. So people weren't renting out ADUs on a short-term basis on a, you know, as a business, it just wasn't, it really wasn't a thing. And if it was, it was very unique and small and in, in the big picture. So it really wasn't popular. So Unfortunately, we don't know. There's no real clear answer to that at the moment. Uh, if we do find a clear answer to that at some point in the future, I'm sure we'll be you know, making a podcast about it. Yeah. We got another one. Okay. We're closing on a short-term rental in California, but live out of state. Can we still use 100% bonus depreciation this year? I saw that California does not conform to the federal special bonus depreciation for properties. Since we do not live in California, does this still apply? Yes, it still applies. You can still bonus depreciate. It just, it's at the federal level that you're going to get the 100% bonus depreciation. And at the California level, you'd have to add it back. You wouldn't be able to claim 100% bonus or any bonus at the California level. So it's not, it's not based on where you live. It's based on where the property is located. Or, well, I should say, if you have California nexus, whatever income stream is associated with real estate, if it has to pass through California, so if it's located in California or if you live in California, then those are the rules. You got to add back that bonus depreciation on your California tax return. So yeah, you can still, you can still claim it at the federal level. You can still benefit there. So it will be beneficial, but you're not gonna be able to claim it at the California state level. 
Yeah. Bummer. Bummer. Um, oh, one other thing that I do want to mention on that before we move on to the next question is if you have a rental that's out of state, you know, press pause on the bonus depreciation piece until you can figure out if you can actually materially participate because most people that are out of state cannot justify or substantiate their material participation just because it's going to be a slog to win that battle. If you're ever audited, uh, there, there are a couple of people that do it. We have a client that's doing it right now, I believe, but the client works their butts off <laughs> and it's a lot of work. Like what I'm trying to say is it's not easy to materially participate at any time, but it's significantly harder when the property's out of state. And you may say it's not harder. I can do the exact same thing, but the point is it's harder to substantiate and win an argument with the IRS. That's the point. All right. So just take the, when you're doing that, just make sure you are, you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Um, now we do have another question. This question is about uh, repairs and capital improvements. And it goes, if I have an expense uh, such as an HVAC repair or parts replacement that could be considered on the bubble, I guess the way, you know, they kind of mean on the cusp uh, between a repair or maintenance versus capital improvement. Is it generally more advantageous to book it as CapEx or repairs and maintenance? And you know, assuming it qualifies for repairs and maintenance expenses, assuming it's definitely not a capital improvement, then it's going to be more advantageous for you to deduct it as a repair and maintenance expense because you can deduct it immediately in the full year, excuse me, the full cost in the year that you performed the repairs and maintenance, and as well as you're going to avoid depreciation recapture down the line. That's generally speaking, very, very clean cut. Another question, are the interest payments on the construction loan tax deductible for a business partnership building a single family house? And the answer to that question is generally the interest on a construction loan during the construction period of the house being built will be added to the basis of that property. So is it tax deductible? Kind of, sort of, not as immediate an expense, In a way. <laughs> but yeah, it gets it gets capitalized and then you're going to eventually depreciate that building. So it will be deducted a little bit over each year that it's depreciated. Yep. So we got another question. We're flying right through these today. So we got looking into a 401k liquidation. I know there's a 10% penalty, but can I use a cost segregation to help offset the tax hit at the end of the year? Would the income after the penalty be considered active? Looking for additional funds to purchase real estate. I love this question. I love this question because I've seen people, I believe even in our Facebook group, say, no, you cannot do something like this. Cause this question comes up probably once, once every quarter or so in that Facebook group. And every once in a while, somebody will say, no, you can't use your non-passive rental losses to offset this rollover or this liquidation income. But the answer is, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Because section 469 doesn't distinguish between portfolio income and active income and earned income and all that stuff. Section 469 simply says, you either have activities that are passive or non-passive. And if you have non-passive activities, those non-passive losses can offset any type of income. So the answer here is yes, you can use rental losses from bonus depreciation from cost seg studies to offset rollovers. Maybe you want to roll over a traditional into a Roth or a Roth into a traditional or whatever, whichever way that goes. Now, maybe you want to do a rollover and that creates taxable income, even though you didn't receive any income. Cool. Cost seg study on a rental, create a tax loss, bam, you can offset that rollover taxable income. Maybe you want to liquidate your retirement accounts like this, uh, like this question asks. Yeah, you, you can use your rental losses to offset that income. 
All right. All right. So here we are. Another question. This one's about the real estate professional status. Um, I am a real estate professional licensed 1099 working in the industry 40 plus hours per week. And my husband is a W2 earner. Can we offset depreciation losses for our rental properties that we have? We have a short-term rental managed by us a long-term rental under a PM company, a midterm rental managed by us uh, against our W-2 income since we filed jointly. If we own properties with other partners through LLC, can any of those losses be used to offset our income as well? Now, that's kind of a loaded question. There's a lot here. So let's, let's break it down. Before we get started, I just want to say there's no such thing, at least for tax purposes, as a quote-unquote midterm rental, right? You either have a long-term rental or you have a short-term rental. And if the again to define a short-term rental average stay of seven days or less or 30 days or less and you provide substantial services that is a short-term rental right if you have an average stay of 31 days or more it's a long-term rental midterm you might categorize that for your own purposes but for tax purposes there's either short-term or long-term so your midterm rental that you manage and your long-term rentals under a property management company you could theoretically group them together using the dash nine election. And if you're able to prove that you spent more than 500 hours on that activity, then you would be able to turn those losses non-passive. And the same thing with your LLC that you have, I assume in your LLC that you have long-term rentals. If you, you would group them all together under the dash nine election, and you would have to meet the 500 hour material participation test on those between you and your husband in order to make those losses non-passive. Now, as for the short-term rental, that's in a different bucket now. That's not being grouped in with the long-term rental properties. So between you and your husband, you'd have to meet one of the material participation tests on the short-term rental. And there's three that you could generally meet. It's 500 hours. If you hit 500 hours, it doesn't matter how much time anybody else spends. You either do substantially everything yourself, which means you pretty much do everything between you and your husband, or C, you spend more than 100 hours on the activity and no one other individual spends more time than you. So if you meet one of those three tests in the short-term rental, that will be non-passive too. So I believe that answers the question. No, well, I, I want to just add, add my two cents in real quick too. This person said that they are a real estate professional. They're licensed and they're working in the industry 40 hours a week. The one thing that I want to point out here is that if you are a real estate agent, you're working 40 hours a week in the industry, you are a real estate professional for tax purposes, you, you meet the real estate professional status test 750 hours and more time in real estate than anywhere else. But what we often see with these types of professionals is they, they forget to come back and materially participate in their own rentals. So it's really critical to take Tom's advice and make sure that you do figure out how to materially participate in your rental activities. Because if you don't, even though your real estate professional status, even though you meet that, uh, your rentals will still be passive. Right, right. That's good. It's a good clarification because a lot of times, you know, people uh, sometimes forget that just because you're a real estate professional by working in another real property trader business doesn't automatically make your rentals non-passive. You still do have to material participate. So having said that, we're going to move right along to the next question. And this is actually a non-real estate question. I was advised by my previous tax preparer that as long as I have a high deductible healthcare plan, that I can open up an HSA account, even if my employer does not sponsor the plan or offer to sponsor the plan. Can anybody shed light on this, please? Yeah. So this is a really easy answer. If you have a high deductible healthcare plan, you can open up your own HSA. I personally use lively.me for my HSA. So why the firm has an HSA? 
Um, because I set it up before the firm had one or before I knew okay. the firm had one. <laughs> so, um, well, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Anyway, I guess the firm doesn't contribute to your HSA. Yeah. I just contributed to myself, but the, the bottom line is you have high deductible healthcare plan. You can contribute to an HSA. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have to look into maybe uh, switching over to the firms, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. The reason the firm just so that everybody's like, why wouldn't the firm contribute to Tom's HSA? He's a good guy. Tom's a partner at the company. So we, we get treated a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, one cool thing about HSAs though, is you can make retroactive contributions. So like, like we're recording this March, 2022, but if you had an HSA in 2021, and you just never funded it, but you've like, you spent out of pocket, all these medical costs, you can retroactively contribute to your HSA for 2021 taxes. Like if you're filing your tax returns right now, so you can get a deduction uh, for those medical costs. And I believe you can also turn right around and distribute the funds to yourself right. from the HSA as a qualified distribution. So it's like, it's kind of just a shell game of money to get a tax deduction and then to put it right back in your pocket. Right. And there's some people, I'm not going to go too far into this. There's some people that say that you should stack up all your medical, put all your money in your HSA, right? Put Max out your HSA, invest your HSA, save all your medical receipts, let your HSA grow. And then at some point later on down the line, cash in all your medical receipts, like a bunch of tickets at a, at uh, a Chuck E. Cheese yeah. and get and get your money out at some point in the future. Wow, dude, that's so smart. You let inflation eat away at your old medical costs or something well, some way to say you have $10,000 in your HSA and you invest in the S and P and it earns 8%. Well, the next year you're going to have, what is that? Uh, $10,800. And then it's going to keep compounding. And over time you keep adding to it, blah, blah, blah. And so you're just earning a return of your money. Your wealth is growing through the investment, but your cost that you incurred years ago stays fixed. So right. um, if you were to reimburse yourself out that year or the next year, like, like you just said, you can do, and you absolutely can do that, by the way, but then you're losing that ability to let that money grow within the HSA because you cashed it out and took it in cash. But if you left it in the HSA and let it grow, now you're earning a return on that money. And then you can later on at some point in future years, 10 years from now, however many years, go ahead and cash it in after the money is grown and compounded. Well, if you cast it out, if you reimbursed yourself though, what, couldn't you just invest it personally? Sure. But it's not tax free. Right. So let me, let me say put $10,000 into an HSA, right? Say you have $10,000 mm -hmm. there. Right. And let's just say over 10 years that accumulates to a hundred thousand dollars, right? That interest is it compound rules of compounding to let it compound over time. And it's tax free compounding too. Right. So when you sell it, when you sell the investment, say the S&P 500 index, you're not paying tax on that. Mm. So it grew, it went in tax-free because you got a tax deduction. It grew tax-free and uh, now you're taking the money out tax-free. So if you would have reimbursed yourself for say $9,000 of medical expenses shortly after you put the money in there, well, you're going to not allow that money to grow. And sure, you could take that $9,000 out and reinvest it yourself and save the S&P 500 in a taxable brokerage account. But then in 10 years, when that grows that $100,000 in this theoretical example, you go and sell that S&P 500 index, you're paying capital gains tax on it. So... Mm. The bottom line is HSA is a very tax efficient vehicle to let your money grow. It's a very good self-insurance vehicle for future medical expenses. And the last thing I'll say on it is that if you are eligible for an HSA, you should go and invest because it's really a no brainer. If you live long enough, if you live long enough, you will have health issues probably that will need to be paid and it will, you will be able to use your HSA for that. Your kids, your wife, your spouse would need it. So there you go. Awesome.
All right, moving on to a travel related question. So can I deduct the travel expenses if I am doing real estate recon while traveling? For example, I fly to Costa Rica to meet with a real estate agent and discuss the possible purchase of a rental property in Costa Rica. Can I deduct those travel expenses? So let, let's forget Costa Rica. Let's just say we're traveling somewhere and we're, we're meeting with a real estate agent to discuss potentially purchasing a property. The travel is not going to be deductible. If you end up purchasing a property in that location, then the travel is either deductible or it's capitalized to the property's basis and it's depreciated over time. So the issue here is that historically the tax court has ruled that a landlord is in business in a small geographical area wherever you own property. So if I own property in Raleigh, North Carolina, I'm in business as a landlord in Raleigh, North Carolina. If I travel to Charlotte, that's a new geographical area and that's not a place that I'm in business. So if I'm just gonna go and meet with potential brokers and stuff and I never actually open up business by buying a rental property there, then that travel cost is not going to be deductible to me. Um, so I would need to be in business. If I already owned a rental in Charlotte and then I was going there to discuss buying another one, then you've got the argument that that travel could be deducted. But if I don't have any business activity in Charlotte, even though it's only a you know, two hour, three hour drive from Raleigh, um, where I am in business, I, I can't deduct that travel. Makes sense. All right. So we got our final question for today. It's another short-term rental slash real estate professional question. Very popular strategies. Okay. Um, if you have a rental real estate activity with active participation, we'll have to clarify that in a second. Are you able to use your passive losses from your other investments, such as a limited partnership stake in a syndication against your W-2 income. My wife is managing my short-term rentals as her primary quote-unquote job, and I'm the one with W-2 income. So I think we have to break this down a little bit because I think there's a lot to take apart here. Yeah, there, sorry. I, I got excited with this one because I thought it was just, can I use my LP losses to offset my passive income? And the answer is yes. And I got excited because I just went back and forth with somebody in our Facebook group about this. And and it was actually a really good discussion. And he ended up saying, wow, you're right. I just fact-checked all this stuff. You provided citations and nobody else does. This is incredible. So in general, the way that this works is the passive activity rules create two buckets of income. It's a passive income bucket and a non-passive income bucket. My passive income bucket includes any trade or business where I don't materially participate and any rental activity. So that's in my passive bucket. My non-passive buckets, my W-2 income, business income, gain on stock sale, interest, dividends, all that stuff. That's all non-passive. I know that some of that sounds like it should be passive, but for the purposes of these rules, it's all considered non-passive. So two buckets of income. The key to understand, and it's complex, and there's a lot of CPAs out there, a lot of tax advisors say, no, it doesn't work that way. And I'm going to tell you how to school them on it because it does work this way. The key is that if it's in the passive bucket, everything can offset each other. It all nets out. So if I have long-term rentals that are producing positive income, I can have a limited partnership investment produce a loss, a passive loss, and that passive loss can offset my long-term rentals passive income. If I sell a rental at a gain, then the gain is ultimately gonna flow through that passive bucket. My limited partnership losses from syndications, can offset the gain on sale from the rental activity, even though it's considered a capital gain, 
it's first considered a passive gain or passive income. And my limited partnership losses can offset that income. Okay. And, and same thing if I, if I owned a hair salon and I, I love this hair salon example, one day I will own a hair salon. Um, so anyway, you put a hundred thousand dollars into a hair salon. They allocate $10,000 a year to you in income. That's passive income. I'm not participating in management. I don't participate at all. I just put $100,000 up and I get $10,000 as a result. So that's passive income. My rental losses, my limited partnership losses can offset that $10,000 of income, even though it's not a rental activity. Because the key is, is that passive activities offset passive activities. That's the key. And everything that we're talking about right now is passive. So we're not talking about reps. We're not talking about you know material participation. We're just talking about passive activities that they all net out. And if anybody ever challenges you, if your CPA challenges you, tax advisor challenges you, if anybody ever tells you no, ask them to prepare form 8582. Form 8582. And they will be shocked because form 8582 line three nets everything together, nets everything. So all passive income, all gain on sale from rental activities, all passive losses, all prior suspended passive losses gets netted together on line three. So they all net against each other. Now, to circle back to this question, the question here is my wife is managing short-term rentals as her primary job. I have W-2 income. Can I use the limited partner losses to offset my W-2 income? So the answer is going to be no. And the reason the answer is no is because short-term rentals are not considered rental activities. And because short-term rentals are not considered rental activities, you cannot use the nine election to group short-term rentals with rental activities. So I cannot group my short-term rentals with long-term rentals or with limited partnership interests that where I'm investing in a syndication that owns rental activities, right? And because I can't group my short-term rentals with rental activities, I can't materially participate in my short-term rentals and then make the syndication activity go non-passive as well. So my syndication activity is always going to be passive. My short-term rentals could be passive or could be non-passive depending on whether or not your spouse materially participates. But one interesting thing here is that if your short-term rentals were passive, and let's say you're passively involved in the coming years when your short-term rental is producing large amounts of cash flow because you've stripped the bonus depreciation out up front. So now you're producing large amounts of cash flow. If you're passive at that point, your limited partnership interests, your limited your, your syndication losses can offset the short-term rental income at that point. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So that's going to be the last question for today. Now, if you have questions that you want answers to, you have a few options. Uh, you can either go into the Tax Smart Investors Facebook group, post it there, and uh, who knows, you might get an answer from one of us there, or we might do it on our next Q&A episode of the podcast. Now, the other way to do it is by joining the Tax Smart Insiders group. We will be hosting that live Q&A this upcoming Wednesday, March 30th at 7 p.m. Eastern, where if you join that live Q&A, you're basically going to be on a Zoom call with myself and a bunch of other Tax Smart Insiders where you can just ask your question live. So if you're going to join that, uh, we'll see you there. But if not, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. 
We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.